Lord, we want to learn, not just for academic sake. Lord, you know our hearts. We want to draw close to you. We want to live a life that's pleasing to you, Lord. And we want attitudes that will glorify you. And I just pray that tonight you'll encourage us as we seek to live our lives pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Job appears as the 18th book in our canon of Scripture. But it was probably the very first book ever written, or at least first biblical book written. Jewish tradition says that its author was Moses, who had heard the story of Job while he was a shepherd in the land of Midian. The first verse tells us that Job was from the land of Uz. Dorothy journeyed to the land of Oz. Job lived in the land of Uz. The city of Uz was a little north of Edom. I don't think it's accidental that Job was the first biblical book penned. Its theme is the most fundamental of all truths. The sovereignty of God. Every other doctrine really rests on the footings of God's sovereignty. This is the first concept that a human needs to grasp. Tragically, it's the one concept that most people never learn. God's sovereignty is his absolute authority. God has no limits. The only rule that governs his actions are his own prerogative and his own will. God does whatever he pleases. The book of Job communicates God's sovereignty. It lets us know up front who's the boss, and it ain't us. Job is structured in four sections. Chapters 1 and 2 are the prologue. Next comes the dialogue between Job and his friends. That occurs in chapters 3 through 37. God's monologue and then Job's reaction to it occurs in chapters 38 through 41. And chapter 42 is the story's epilogue. So here's the outline. The prologue, the dialogue, the monologue, and the epilogue. Chapter 1 begins with a description of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. From the very outset, the author of the book wants his audience to know that it was nothing Job did that caused the calamity that came upon him. Job sinned like other men, of course, but he did nothing to warrant his horrible circumstances that will come later. Job was righteous. But in addition to being righteous, Job was also rich. He was even renowned. And he had seven sons and three daughters, a big family that he loved dearly. As priest in his home, Job took it upon himself to intercede before God on behalf of his kids. He made sacrifices for them, not only when they sinned, but whenever they had the opportunity to sin, just in case. That's how much Job loved his kids, and that's how much Job feared the Lord and desired his pleasure. Verse 3 sums up Job. He was the greatest of all the people of the East. Wow. Now, verse 6, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. We're told, now there were a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. 
And here the expression, the sons of God, or in the Hebrew, Beni Elohim, was an expression for angels. So in other words, the angelic hosts were filing their reports with God when Satan also came among them. Understand, apparently, Satan has access to the throne of God. The Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. You know, a lot of people think Satan lives in hell. But hell is the last place that Satan wants to go. He's alive on planet earth. He's stirring, stirring up mischief, you know, wherever he can. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, like a proud papa? God himself brings up Job and says, Have you seen what a wonderful man Job is? Here's the irony of the story. Job's friends will later insist that there are specific sins in Job's life that have caused all of his hideous problems. But just the opposite is true. All that came upon Job was the result of a righteous life that pleased God, so much so that God was willing to hang his reputation on Job's responses to all this calamity. Verse 9 tells us, So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? That's my prayer. Lord, put a hedge around me and my family and my household. It's interesting. Satan couldn't breach that hedge without God's permission. And I believe that there is a holy hedge around all of God's kids. Did you know that Satan cannot harm a single hair on your head without God's permission? To me, that's such a comfort that we have a father filter around us, protecting us, watching over us. Nothing can get through to you that doesn't come attached with both God's permission and with God's purpose. But Satan continues his challenge. He says, you have blessed the work of Job's hands. And his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. It's been said that Satan is the world's first behaviorist. He claims Job is like Pavlov's dogs. He's been conditioned to love God. Hey, The more he serves God, the more he gets from God. So why not continue serving God? It's in his best self-interest. Satan contends that God is nothing more to Job than a meal ticket. And here he throws down the gauntlet. Nicks the blessing. And you'll stop Job's devotion. As one author observed, people love God the way a peasant loves a cow. For the butter and the cheese it produces. This was Satan's argument. And there is a truth. The only way to really find out if a person loves God is to cut off the butter. To cut off the cheese. See if the devotion is still there even when the delight has gone. Verse 12 tells us, 
The Lord said to Satan, Behold all that he has in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And here the Lord drops the hedge and allows Satan to get at Job. Overnight, Job loses his wealth, his property, his servants. Imagine, even his kids are taken from him. Job loses everything but his faith. And in verse 21, Job utters one of the most stirring declarations of faith ever to fall from human lips. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, Job does love God, not for what he can get out of it, but because God is worthy. Chapter 1 closes, In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. In chapter 2, Satan again appears before God. This time, God himself vindicates Job. In verse 3, he says that all of Job's troubles are without cause. Job did nothing to merit them. Job did nothing to bring them on himself. Job was being tested. And here is a heavy truth. The story of Job teaches us that you and I are caught up in a colossal battle. That we're caught up in a conflict. C.S. Lewis once observed, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And guys, God and Satan are fighting over our reactions. You see, heaven is watching. How I respond to the fender bender or how I treat the rude waitress or how you deal with the unfair grade or how you handle the news of a terminal illness. My reaction to all of these things will either bring glory to God or it will bolster Satan's blasphemies. Who knows if God has hung his holy reputation on your reaction to the trial you're facing? Understand, the stress in our life may be a test of our faith. Would you love God even if He withdrew His benefits from your life? Or are you just serving Him for the butter and the cheese? I hope we'd all share Job's attitude. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Satan is a sore loser. And he says in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, he's saying, God, all you've touched is his wealth. Strip him of his health, and he'll blaspheme you. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold... He is in your hand, but spare his life. Satan strikes Job with a plague of painful, pustuous, oozing, itching boils. Boils all over his body, from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. 
And in verse 8, we see the pathetic picture. Job is sitting in the ash heap, scratching his itching boils with a broken piece of pottery. I want you to listen to all of the complications that this physical ailment brought upon Job. Here's a copy of Job's medical chart. Chapter 3, verse 24 tells us that he had a loss of appetite. Chapter 3, verse 24 and 25 adds depression. Chapter 7, verse 5 tells us that worms were in his boils. He had a hard time keeping them clean. In chapter 7, verse 5, he had hardened skin and running sores. Chapter 7, verse 14, all this was accompanied by terrifying nightmares. Chapter 9, verse 18, he had a shortness of breath. In chapter 16, verse 16, he had darkened eyelids. In chapter 19, verse 17, he had a bad case of foul breath. Chapter 19, verse 20, he lost weight. Chapter 30, verse 17, he was in continual pain. Chapter 30, verse 17, an erosion of the bones. Chapter 30, verse 27, an inability to rest. And in chapter 30, verse 30, he suffered from a high fever. And our list doesn't even include the social scorn and the banishment that befell this man. He was ostracized from his society. He lost overnight his position and his prominence. Job became the Rodney Dangerfield of us. He got no respect from anybody. Wow. When a man has suffered like this, and when a man is down, it's so good to know that he's got a wife to go home to that will love him and that will support him and that will encourage him. But look at what Mrs. Job tells him. Verse 9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Just curse God and die, honey. Feel the love, man. This is why Satan didn't kill Job's wife along with his children. She was more help to him alive than dead. Ladies, though, let this be a lesson. Never underestimate the impact that a wife has on her husband. Your words do build him up. Or they tear him down. I know wives who constantly belittle their husbands. Then they complain he's not more of a man. And they never see the correlation. Notice though how Job replies, verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? You know, Job was a courageous man. When was the last time you said to your wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speak? Anyway, (laughs) shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I think the Holy Spirit may have inserted that last phrase just for the positive confession crowd. Because there are teachers who claim that Job's Job's calamity was the result of a negative confession. But here we're told that his distress had nothing to do with anything he did or that he said. You might say, Job was the best of men. 
suffering the worst of circumstances. When I study the book of Job, I am always stunned at the realization that Job never had the opportunity to read the first two chapters of Job. He never did. He never learned the reason for all of his calamity. And that's what sets up the next 35 chapters. For in chapter 2, verse 11, Job's three friends enter the picture. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And notice Bildad was a short guy. He's called the Shuhite. That makes him even shorter than Nehemiah. So he was a really short guy. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 tell us what happened. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Seven days was the period of grief that was given to someone who had died. And in their minds, the Job that they knew was indeed dead. In chapter 3, verse 1, Job finally breaks the silence by wishing he had never been born. From the outset, in chapter 3, verse 26, Job identifies what troubles him most. He says, for the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. Now, what was it that Job dreaded? What was it that he feared? Chapter 1 tells us. You remember, he had offered sacrifices for his children, just in case they ever sinned. You see, the worst possible plight for Job was to fall out of God's favor. And now that appears to him to be what's happened. For he is wondering, why has God turned against him? Of course, just the opposite was true. God had not turned against Job. In fact, God loved Job. God was proud of Job. God took joy in Job. The fact that God was proud of him is what set off the whole ordeal in the first place. Job, though, thought that his plight meant God's displeasure. It didn't. But that's what he thought. It's interesting that the burning issue for Job was not the loss of family, nor the loss of property, nor even the loss of his health, but the perceived loss of God's favor. To me, this is a real credit to Job's character. I'm not so sure I'd be spiritual enough to even think about the loss of God's favor. I think I'd be more preoccupied with my boils. But Job, what bothered him the most was that all this meant in his mind that, that, he had, that he had lost God's favor, that he had lost God's pleasure, and that was the thing he feared most. Once Job breaks the silence, his three friends try to answer the question, why? And they offer three rounds of erroneous explanation for his tragedy. Chapters 4 through 31 record eight speeches. And each of the speeches is followed by a rebuttal from Job. Each friend goes in order. Eliphaz is eloquent. He's articulate. He's very diplomatic. Bildad, though, is brutal. Frank, dogmatic to the point 
Zophar is zealous. He's downright mean and hostile toward Job. And so we have Eliphaz the eloquent, Bildad the brutal, and Zophar the zealous. You with me, Zophar? Good. In chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that Job's friends came to comfort him, and yet their counsel did anything but offer comfort. Instead, their logic torments Job. Their arguments aggravate his grief. Job might have been the very first person ever to say, with friends like you guys, who needs enemies? And here's the problem. Job's friends try to impose on Job a faulty theology. They are strict adherents to a kindergarten theology. If you face trouble or sickness or loss, it means that you've sinned in some way or another. Assumed is that suffering is God's way of punishing evil. Wealth and health always his way of rewarding righteousness. In the minds of Job's friends, their faulty assumption leaves them but two options to explain Job's predicament. Either God is unfair or Job has sinned. They're not about to say God is unfair, of course. And so their only conclusion left to them, given their framework of theology, is that Job has done something wrong. Job has sinned. And for the rest of these chapters, they try to pin a sin on Job. They badger him, wanting a confession out of him. Job, though, insists on his innocence. Yes, he's a sinful man. All men are sinners, but he's done nothing to deserve this devastation. And he maintains his integrity. He holds fast to his honesty. And what we have in these chapters, Job's honesty collides with the faulty theology of his three friends. Eliphaz was the oldest, so he goes first. In chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, he asks Job, Whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen... Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. It's harder to make that argument in light of the cross. Jesus, of course, was the most innocent of us all. Of course, he was sinless, the only sinless one. And yet he was cut off. He perished. But here Eliphaz is looking past those examples. He's stuck, confined, trapped in bondage to this faulty theology And in his mind, Job must have sinned. You reap what you sow. Trouble always springs from seeds of sin. In verse 17 of chapter 4, Eliphaz says his diagnosis of Job's dilemma was confirmed to him by a dream. And Eliphaz pulls out the old supernatural trump card. This is the favorite technique of the spiritual intimidator. How can you argue with supernatural revelation. I hope you're smart enough not to get bullied by this kind of tactic. You remember what Paul said to the Galatians, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, angels can lie. Dreams and visions are suspect. It's the Bible that never fails. 
Eliphaz's conclusion was based on experience. We need to base our conclusions, guys, on the Word of God. In chapter 5, verse 6, Eliphaz says that there's got to be a reason, for affliction does not come from the dust. (laughs) In other words, these kinds of things don't just happen. In verse 8, he tells Job that if it were him, he would repent. And all this would be good advice if his basic assumption were true. And of course it's not. In Job's rebuttal, he maintains his innocence. He's not sinned and he doesn't lie. In chapter 6, verse 25, he says, How forceful are right words, but what does your arguing prove? Job says in chapter 7, verse 11, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And the word complain occurs more times in the book of Job than it does in any other book of the Bible. More than half the complaints in Scripture fall from the lips of Job. In chapter 7, verse 20, Job vents his anger toward God. He says, have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? Job feels like he's being picked on, like God has chosen him to use for target practice. Have you ever felt that way? (laughs) Job wants to know why. Now, unlike Eliphaz, who leads into the argument, Bildad the Brutal, he cuts to the chase. In chapter 8, verse 3, he asks, Does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against Him, He has cast them away for their transgression. It all seems pretty clear to Him. The punishment always fits the crime. Heavy suffering is proof of heavy sinning. To Bildad... And yet in chapter 9, verse 21, Job replies, I am blameless. And he holds to his innocence. Job knows that God is infinite, that he is finite, that God is holy, that he's a sinner. And that's why Job knows he needs a mediator. He needs a go-between. He needs some legal representation here. You know, when your back's against the wall, when you feel like you're being treated unfairly, let me call my lawyer. And that's what Job's reaction was. I want to call my lawyer. I need a mediator. He says of God in chapter 9, verse 32, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. That's why he needs to find a mediator. Job concludes in verse 33, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. He looks around, but he finds no mediator. For all men are in the same boat. All men are in the same situation. It's interesting, man's need for a mediator will ultimately be met by none other than our Lord Jesus. Only Jesus could lay his hand on both God and man. For he was fully God and fully human. In the meantime, Job is left to defend himself. And that's what he does. In chapter 10, verse 2, he says, I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. And over and over, Job demands of God an explanation until it sours his attitude. He becomes God's critic. He makes himself out to be God's judge. And understand, this is why the book of Job is so relevant to us today. 
Because this is the sin of modern man. We have been rash enough to tell God how he should be God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The ancient man approached God as the accursed person approaches a judge. For the modern man, the roles are reverse. He is the judge. God is in the dock, which is a British way of saying he's on the witness stand. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial might even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. This is Job. He has put himself on the bench. He is the judge. God is the accused. He's put himself on the bench and he's put God in the dock. His pain has poisoned his piety. He's copped an attitude. Sure, he loves God. Sure, he trusts God. But in demanding an explanation, he has forgotten that God is God. That he's sovereign. That he does what he wills and he doesn't ask for your permission. He doesn't promise us an explanation. God answers to no one, particularly a man like Job. Author Philip Yancey describes Job's speeches. Barely able to restrain satire, he vents angry protests against God, wandering just to the edge of blasphemy. Job, in seeking to know why, loses his way. Next, Zophar the zealous gets into the argument, and this guy is cold. He's cruel. Look at what he says in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Can you imagine telling Job, of all people, that he's gotten less than he deserves? Yet that's what he says. In chapter 12, Job pops a hole in his friend's theology. He says in verse 6, The tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure. In other words, sometimes the wicked do prosper. And his conclusion is, is that either God is unfair, Job doesn't believe that, but that's in their way of thinking, either Job is unfair or there's a problem with your theology. It's inadequate for the realities of life. And that was the truth. In chapter 13, verse 6, Job tells his friends that if they're smart, they'll just shut up. He's getting tired of this. And apparently Zophar had really made him mad. And Job accuses him in verse 7 of putting wicked words in God's mouth. And Job predicts in verse 10 that God will punish his friends. He will refute their counsel. And that's exactly what happens at the end of the book. Job was right. Job makes a powerful profession of faith in chapter 13, verse 15. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That is so powerful. Job is saying, even if God slays me, I'll still follow him. I'll still trust him. You see, Job really wanted God glorified, either at his convenience 
or at his expense. So many times, oh, we want God glorified in our life as long as it makes me look good. As long as it's, you know, means blessing for me. But Job is saying, hey, it doesn't matter to me. Whether it's at my convenience or whether it's at my expense, I want God glorified. Even though Job was unable to reconcile what had happened to him with what he knew of God, even though he felt betrayed by God, nevertheless, he knows that God is great and he is determined to trust him because he knows that God is trustworthy. It's been said, Job teaches us that we need faith most at the moment when it seems impossible. But notice the rest of verse 15. (laughs) Job will trust God no matter what, but he still wants a reason. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. I still want to know why. And he'll still keep pressing to know an explanation. And you might say Job passes the test, but in the process he becomes more and more testy. Eliphaz speaks for the second time in chapter 15, verse 2. He says, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Now note the east wind blew off the desert and it was a warm wind. And so in essence, Eliphaz is accusing Job of being full of hot air. In Job's rebuttal, he's still looking for a mediator. Some representation. And he says in chapter 16, verse 19, Surely even now my witness is in heaven, and my evidence is on high. He's saying God is aware of his innocence. God knows he's innocent. He just wishes that he had someone to intercede for him. He says in chapter 16, verse 21, Oh, that one might plead for a man with God, as a man pleads for his neighbor. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, reveals the answer to Job's prayer. There Paul says, there is a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Today, Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of God and he makes intercession for you. He at this moment is securing help for us. He's our friend in high places. Bildad, the brutal, shows his brutality again in chapter 18, verse 21. Here he accuses Job of not even knowing God. I mean, they pull out all the stops trying to find a chink in Job's armor, trying to find something in his life to blame his calamity on. In chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, Job responds to Bildad, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me. Words are powerful. You know, the old saying, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you. That's not true. Words are very harmful. Job says, how long will you break me in pieces with your words? In the book of Job, we have three rounds of this tormenting counsel. But verse 3 here implies that there may have been seven more. Job says, ten times you have reproached me. Can you imagine enduring what Job endured for not just three rounds, but ten rounds? 
Unbelievable. Job's counselors just keep pounding and pounding and pounding him with accusation. In chapter 19, verse 5 and 6 is an example of Job wandering perilously, perilously close to the edge of blasphemy, as we read earlier. He says, If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know then that God has wronged me. Remember, based on the restricted theology of his three friends, there were really only two possible explanations for what had happened to Job. Either he had sinned or God was unfaithful. And Job here is so certain of his innocence that given only these two scenarios, he says, well, I haven't sinned, so God must have been wrong. He doesn't really accuse God of injustice, but he comes awfully close. And he's definitely become haughty. He's definitely become arrogant. He's become so caught up trying to vindicate himself that he's begun to play loose with his reverence for God. What happens here is a humble man becomes a hurting man who becomes a haughty man. An explanation from God has become more important to Job than God's glory and honor. And that's a dangerous scenario to end up in. Paul Harvey spices up his radio programs by splitting up his stories. He'll spin a tale before the commercial. It leaves you wondering about the outcome. Then he'll bait you with that promise. We'll be back for the rest of the story. After the commercial, he comes back, he reveals the full plot, and the perplexing story ends up making perfect sense. It's wonderful. We all smile. We walk away. We've been blessed. And we understand today, the here and now, we are living before the commercial. You see, the rest of the story may not be told to us until we get to heaven. I believe that every story begun on earth ends up in eternity to be a happy ending. It has a happy ending. But until we get there, we may have to endure some perplexity. We may have to cope with some confusion. We may not know why. Faith doesn't always get a reason. For now, we need to realize that we're not limited to just two options. That suffering doesn't always mean that the sufferer has sinned, nor does it mean that God has failed. It just might mean that we can't see God's purpose. That we don't know what God is doing. God is good. God is righteous. But God doesn't always give us an explanation for what He does. But one day, that purpose will be revealed And in chapter 19, verses 25 and 26, Job expresses his faith in that fact. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. One day God will appear to him to tell him the rest of the story. In chapter 20, Zophar describes how God judges sin and how Job fits the scenario. But in his rebuttal, Job agrees 
that the wicked will be judged, the righteous will be rewarded, but it won't all get sorted out so nicely in this life. In chapter 21, verse 30, he says, For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. Sometime judgment gets postponed to a later date. And through it all, Job maintains his innocence. In chapter 22, Eliphaz loses his cool. In his desperation to pin a sin on Job, he dreams up an accusation. In verses 7 through 9, he falsely accuses Job of stinginess. He just makes it up out of thin air. In his rebuttal, Job affirms his belief in God's justice. And if Job had an opportunity to present his case before God, he knows that God would pronounce him not guilty. And deep down inside, Job has this foggy notion that he's being put to the test. Job sensed it. For in chapter 23, verse 10, he says, When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. When you don't know what's happening, when you don't have an explanation, do know that you could be being tested. That your reaction does matter. It is important. I love the source of Job's confidence. He knows that he'll pass this test because he has built his faith on God's word. He says in chapter 23, verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips, for I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And guys, in the midst of a trial, nothing is more important. Nothing is more necessary than to be founded on God's word. In chapter 24, Job notes some inconsistencies in life that trouble him. At times, the criminal gets away with his crime. Not all scores get settled. Not all injustices are corrected in this life. Job doesn't know why, but no one can refute these facts. And at the end of chapter 24, Job has silenced his critics. In chapter 25, Bildad offers one more short rehearsal of the same worn-out arguments. Zophar, though, doesn't even bother to speak again. He just drops it. So far as he's concerned, it's all been said. Why be repetitious? And the next six chapters are all Job. He begins to summarize his case by extolling God's magnificence. And he makes some intriguing statements for a man living 3,500 years ago. In chapter 26, verse 7, he says, He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. How does Job know that the earth is suspended over empty space? That's interesting. The Greeks believed that the earth was held up by the arms of Atlas. The Hindus taught that the earth rested on the back of three elephants that stood on a tortoise. Job, living before either tradition, makes an astonishingly accurate astronomical statement. Look to it, what he says of God in verse 10. He says, you drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Before Christopher Columbus discovered the new world, there were some people who thought the world was flat. But if they had just read the book of Job... God would have told them that the earth was a circle. Here's just two more proofs of the supernatural origin of the scriptures. 
the book you hold in your hand can certainly be trusted. Job sums up God's majesty in chapter 26, verse 14. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how shall a whisper, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Isn't that amazing? All that we know of God, it's just the edges of his ways. It's just a small whisper of his thunderous voice. The accumulated knowledge of all the world's elite scientists is nothing but romper room chatter, nothing but nursery rhymes compared to the mystery of our Almighty God. From chapter 26 to 27, you see Job's mood swing. He knows God is majestic. He knows God is mighty. Yet he can't reconcile God's justice with his own experience. And again, in chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, Job wanders close to the edge of blasphemy. He says, far be it from me that I should say you are right till I die. I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and I will not let it go. Do you hear what he's saying? In essence, Job is saying, if it means that God is wrong for me to be right, so be it. And really, Job has lost all fear of God at this point. He has become so adamant that he is right, that he is even willing to concede the possibility that God is wrong. He has lost his reverence and his respect for God, and his vindicating of himself has become more important to him than his honoring and respecting and adoring God's glory. In chapter 28, Job discusses the latest in mining advances. He marvels at how men can extract minerals from the earth. But they can't find wisdom. They can find diamonds, but not wisdom. This is true of our day. We can put a man on the moon. But we can't solve social problems like teen pregnancy and drug abuse and racial prejudice. Why? We lack wisdom. In chapters 29 and 30, Job compares the good old days before calamity struck with his present distress. He used to be restricted, respected in his community. He was the E.F. Hutton of us. When Job talked, people listened. But now, oh, he says in chapter 30, verse 1, but now they mock at me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. What a turnaround. The sons of men that Job wouldn't have trusted with his sheepdog are now laughing at his expense. In other words, the down and out are now looking down at Job. That's pretty low. In chapter 30, verse 20, Job says that he's tried to pray, but to no avail. He says, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. In verse 21, again, he pushes the borders of blasphemy. He says, you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. That couldn't have been further from the truth. But Job's pain has distorted his perspective. And this is the problem with pain. It scrambles our thoughts. It clouds our minds. It fogs up our judgment. Pain tempts me to draw wrong conclusions about life, even about God. In chapter 31, Job searches his heart. If he sinned, he'll confess it. He'll repent. And go through the chapter. He says, if I've lied... 
or if I've lusted, or if I've been cruel, or if I've been stingy, or if I've been materialistic, or if I've been proud, or if I've been vengeful, or if I've been dishonest in business. And he just goes right down the list. He says, if I was guilty of any of these things, I would confess it. But Job says, I've done none of these things. I'm innocent. And I love what he says in chapter 31, verse 1. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? In other words, when it comes to lust, he says, hey, I haven't even lusted after a woman because I made a covenant with my eyes. And here Job becomes a model for every man. Guys, if you never look, you'll never lust. If you control where your eyes go, where your eyes move, what you look at, if you'll control the portal, the opening, then you can control what goes on inside. You need to make a covenant with your eyes. Job cut sin off at the source. He made a covenant with his eyes. And if you are serious about purity and about walking in holiness, you'll make a covenant not to allow your eyes to go where they shouldn't. In chapter 31, verses 35 and 36, Job cries out again what he's been screaming since chapter 3. He says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. In other words, God, give me a reason and put it in print. I want it in black and white. It wasn't the loss or the pain that caused Job the most grief, but the absence of an explanation. And in verse 40, the section closes, the words of Job are ended. Now in chapter 32, a man named Elihu speaks up. He was a younger man, younger than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and so he had yielded to his elders. He had been waiting his turn. But by the time they were finished, Elihu was furious. He was mad at Job, and he was mad at these three friends. He was mad at the counselors because of the falsehoods that they spoke. And he says in verse 9 of chapter 32, Great men are not always wise. I've had a few college professors that would make me believe that as well. Here he's talking about Job's buddies. Great men are not always wise. They're not always smart. He's also, though, angry at Job. For Job has become far more concerned about validating his character than God's character. Job made God look bad in order to make himself look good. He has become arrogant. He has lost the fear of God and that has upset Elihu. He's mad at Job too. Now Elihu takes up the cause of God's character. And the theme of what he says basically is that God is just. Don't accuse God. God is not false. God is not wrong. And in verse 24 of the chapter, he says that God does deliver. In verse 28, he says that God does redeem. In verse 30, he says God brings back the soul from the pit. In chapter 34, verse 9, he says it does profit to serve God. In chapter 34, verse 12, he says God is never unjust. The accusations that Job hurled at God were just as false as the accusations that Job's friends had hurled at him. Chapter 34, verse 37 sort of sums up Elihu's point. 
He says, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Elihu assumes that Job has sinned. He too is trapped in the same faulty theology as the other men. But what he addresses is what's happened to Job's attitude since his calamity. And that's what's tragic. For Job has lost his reverence for God. Notice what Elihu says of God in chapter 35, verse 10. He says, Who gives songs in the night? I love that. God does comfort the distressed. God does bring joy and solace and peace in times of darkness. But here's Job's problem. Why he feels so estranged from God. Why he prays and his prayers don't get answered. It's because he has resented the darkness. God chose not to tell him why. But Job kept pushing the issue, thinking that God owed him a reason. And it was Job's arrogance that was keeping him from receiving God's comfort. The Spirit of God could have lifted Job's spirit. The Spirit of God could have enabled Job to sing songs in the night, to be content without knowing if Job had been willing to trust God, even in the dark. Here's a vital quote. Where God puts a period, never change it to a question mark. When God refuses to give an answer, give it up. Stop seeking it. Learn to live without it. Real faith trusts the Lord even where it cannot trace the Lord. God will lift up your spirit if you humble your heart. He promises us songs in the night if we trust in Him. In chapter 36, Elihu continues to vindicate God's character. In the end, God will rebuke Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Apparently, they were instruments of Satan to torment Job, but Elihu escapes rebuke. His motive was pure. And though he shared the simplistic theology of the other men, God did use Elihu to help Job. Elihu gets Job's eyes off himself and gets them back on God. And he ends chapter 37 with a majestic picture of God's sovereignty over nature, particularly the weather. He talks about clouds and rain and thunder and lightning and wind. And all the while, there is a storm brewing off in the distance that is getting closer and closer as Elihu describes God's sovereignty over the weather. And Elihu is being used to prepare Job for what happens next. Chapter 38 tells us, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of this storm. And said, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, Job, you don't know what you've been saying. You have no idea. Job has been demanding an audience with God. His day in court, so to speak, and now he gets it. God answers his questions, but in a way that we would have never expected. The Lord appears to Job in this whirlwind with a few questions of his own. 
In other words, God puts Job on the hot seat. Verse 3, he says, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Okay, God, Job, pull up your bootstraps. It's time for us to talk. It's time for me to see how much you know. It's time for an attitude adjustment. Job thinks he knows it all, but does he really? And in the next three chapters, a haughty Job gets taken down a notch or two. And God will ask him 70 questions that will prove for him to be impossible to answer. He begins in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And of course, God is being sarcastic. And he's about to show Job how little he really does know. Understand, this is the one question, though, that we can't answer. The measurements of the earth. The earth measures 24,901.55 miles around the equator and 24,859.82 miles around its meridians. But what's amazing about these questions that God asked Job is that 3,500 years of scientific research has only enabled us to answer maybe one or two of these questions. Most of these questions God asks Job, we still can't answer. Even in an age of modern scientific discovery. And it's really a lesson for us. For like Job, we moderns need to humble ourselves. We need to realize that we too are just as ignorant as Job. That our wisdom is nothing compared to the infinite knowledge and mysteries of God. Puny humans know nothing compared to God's wisdom and wonders. God begins with questions about creation. Then he moves on to discuss nature, the atmosphere, the oceans, light, precipitation, the constellations. Then he talks about the predatory instincts of animals, their reproductive cycles, their maternal instincts. And he goes on and on about the animal kingdom. And Job, as he hears all this, is, is he keeps, well, I don't know. And all these questions get answered. And Job just standing there, he's silent. And he's beginning to realize that he really doesn't know as much as he thought he did. And God really bears down on him in chapter 40, verse 2. He says, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Job had dared to rebuke God. Mark Twain wrote, I could as easily injure a planet by throwing mud at it as to rebuke God. What about it, Job? How about some answers, Job? But Job is speechless. Here's what's happened. God has successfully returned Job to the dock. And God has taken his place back on the bench. Hopefully that's where he is in your life. On the bench. Hopefully you're in the dock. Proper proportion is returning to Job's perspective. But he's not there yet. It's still, his attitude is still less than God desires. 
For God says in chapter, Job says in chapter 40, verse 4 and 5, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Notice, okay, I'm just going to shut up. You know, he's not really praising God yet. He's just pouting. He'll give in. Okay, God, you're sovereign. But he gives in only because he has no other choice. There's no surrender in this confession. There's no worship in this confession. What Job needs to do is to bow his knee before a God who does whatever he pleases and worship that God for who he is and to let that God be God in his life and to rejoice over the fact that God is willing to be his God. That's the attitude he needs. But he's not there yet. And that's why God starts a new round of questions in verses 7 and 8. And immediately God challenges Job to try his hand at executing justice. You see, Job has accused an infinite God of being unjust and unfair. But can a finite Job do any better? What if Job were plunged into the perplexities of life and it were up to him to mete out what was right in every situation? In other words, how would he do if he were God for a day? You know, we can, we can be so busy questioning God. You know, and doubting God. And yet, what if you were God for a day? How long would it take you to totally mess things up? I mean, suddenly the, the earth is spinning out of orbit. You know, the planets are colliding, the... We're getting eaten up by the sun. The whole universe is in chaos. What happened? Oh, Sandy was God that day. <laughs> Job criticized God for 28 chapters, but God is a job he doesn't really want. Be glad you're not God. It's a pretty tough job. In chapter 40, verse 15... Through chapter 41, God brings up two beasts, the king of the land, in essence, and the king of the sea, behemoth and leviathan, animals tamed only by God. Some scholars suggest that behemoth was a hippo and leviathan was a crocodile, but neither identification fits the descriptions. Notice behemoth moves his tail like a cedar. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like iron bars. He crosses the river Jordan with ease. The sea monster in chapter 41 verse 21 breathes fire from his mouth. And I personally believe that these animals were both dinosaurs. A dinosaur more accurately fits the description. In 1977... A decomposing corpse of a plesiosaur was found off the New Zealand coast. And from time to time, scientists will find a species of animal, even what they thought was a prehistoric animal, surface in our world today. Something they thought was extinct, but they find evidence of it having been alive just recently or even being alive right now. Who knows what creatures inhabit our oceans even to this day? And if a dinosaur can be living today, who says dinosaurs may not have been around in Job's day? Remember, Job is the oldest book. And the dinosaurs died off in the post-flood world, hostile 
to their survival. But apparently a few may have still been living and around at the time of Job. By chapter 42, verse 1, Job's been humbled by the wisdom and power of God in nature. And in verse 3, he repents. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job finally yields to the sovereignty of God. Reverence is restored. And it's interesting. Job never learned why his calamity had come upon him, but he learned about God. And as I said this morning, when you know who, you don't need to know why. In chapter 42, verse 7, God deals with Job's three counselors. He tells them to take seven rams and seven bulls. They were good at bringing the bull. And they're told to take the seven bulls to Job to offer sacrifice. They're to ask Job to intercede for their forgiveness. (laughs) In other words, God is requiring them to eat a little humble pie. We're told in verse 10, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Isn't that interesting? It says, Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. But when did it start? When did the turn take place? When did it happen? When he gave up his bitterness and prayed for his friends. Bitterness is a blocker. Bitterness stymies and shuts off God's blessing. Guys, if you're nurturing resentment, if you're harboring bitterness toward a brother or a sister, you're blocking the blessing of God from coming into your life. You're cutting yourself off from the goodness and grace of God. You need to uproot that bitterness immediately. Before you leave tonight, get rid of that bitterness. Tradition tells us that Job lived 210 years total. And God doubled all that he had lost. Job died apparently with many treasures. But the greatest by far was the knowledge of God that he had gained. In the ash heap, his attitude had been forever altered. He had learned life's first and most important lesson. That there is a God and he's not me. I trust you've learned that lesson as well. Father, thank you for the wonderful book of Job. For the many insights that we've gleaned. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to examine our own attitude. And to take the lessons Job learned and make them part of our attitude and our perspective as well. We love you, Lord. Watch over us. Take care of us this week. We do want you to be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.